As, as you may know, this, uh, this coming week, we, we enter some of the, the final weeks of the Epiphany season, which, to remind you, is simply the season where we rediscover the particularity and the surprise of who Jesus is. We uncover and reveal who He is. And it makes sense if you think about it in the sequence of the liturgical calendar. So during, during the Christmas season, we celebrate Jesus' birth, His coming. We prepare her for His second coming as well. But here in Epiphany, we behold, I really like that word. I think that's, that's helpful. We gaze deeply into who Jesus really is and what He does and what He cares about. And so if you've been following along week by week in the gospel readings, you'll notice that there was a shift last week. We, we started out watching what Jesus does. We got the story of the Magi. We, we saw the first disciples collected. We saw uh, John the Baptist. We saw all of these people gathering around Jesus and watched him do things. But last week, we suddenly turned to listen to what he says. So we had the Beatitudes last week. And then the incredible thing today is he doesn't simply tell us what to do or the way things are. He doesn't instruct us in some simple way, but he actually just tells us who we are. He says it right there, you are the light of the world. And I think this is perhaps a key phrase in determining precisely who we are in light of who Jesus is, which is, again, the whole point of epiphany. We are the light of the world. And before we jump into some deeper reflection on this topic, which is what I'm going to spend most of our time talking about, I simply want to note how important this is, noting our identity. Culturally speaking, uh, we are obsessed with this. We, we, we absolutely are committed to determining and understanding our identity, to, to claiming and retrieving particular identity markers, and to constructing and cultivating perhaps an identity that reflects who we long to be. We do this from um, purchasing name brand items. We do this by being part of interest groups. We do this by participating in particular sports or activities. We do this by noting our political ideologies. We're all searching for some sort of deeper identity marker that might make sense of who we want to be. And this is not something strange or abnormal. Cultural commentators have noted this for many years now. Charles, Fa- Charles Taylor is a famous Canadian philosopher who is uh, most useful for putting you to sleep before bed, uh, wrote an entire book on this issue of identity construction. In it, he wrote, and this is a quick summary of it, he says, to know who I am is a species of knowing where I stand. He goes on, in other words, my identity is the horizon within which I am capable of taking a stand. My identity is the horizon within which I am capable of taking a stand. That is, knowing who you are is part of what determines what you care about, what you think about, what you think is right or wrong, and even what you do on a day-to-day basis. So Jesus' statement here is actually remarkable. He says, you have an identity. You are the light of the world. But you see, this isn't just a cultural fixation of our current moment. It's actually something that's deeply embedded within the Scriptures themselves. You see it all over the place. The the first thing that comes to my mind is the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you read through it, you'll notice in those 
fir- that whole first half, there is no imperative. He does not tell them to do anything. Rather, Paul spends basically three whole chapters line by line telling the Ephesians precisely who they are. He says they are elected, they are saved, they are reconciled, they are citizens of the kingdom, they are members of God's own household, they are his very inheritance, his treasure. You see, he wants them to know who they are in Jesus Christ. And that is the first thing that I want us to see in this sort of epiphany revelation about our identity in Christ Jesus. You see, there is no request, there is no question that's given to us in this statement from Jesus. He simply tells us who we are, the light of the world. And I think for many of us, whether you're familiar with the Christian tradition or not, you're new to it, I think this detail should be surprising and perhaps even somewhat shocking. You might think, well, what about my personal failures? What about the morally problematic components of my person? What about my sin or my anxiety or, or, or my, um, my flightiness? What about those things? And it's as if Jesus says, before any of those things, you are my light to the world. And I find this fascinating, this sort of apprehension about claiming this uh, no one has said this better probably than Friedrich Nietzsche, his famous 19th century German philosopher. You've probably heard of him. He, he hated Christianity, just loathed Christianity. And he called it, uh, in, in one part, the, the great curse and blemish of the human race. How does that make you feel? We are the great curse and blemish of the human race. But the reason he hated Christians is because he thought we were a religion of the weak and the sick and the... Um, we're the, de- the, the detritus of the world. And in a way, he, he's not totally wrong. Paul will say things later on that conjure up something of that. But you see, the, the problem with that, and the problem with Nietzsche's assessment of our own faith, is that it in no way accounts for the first few chapters of our scriptures. It might have been helpful for him to have read those Because if you read those first few chapters of Genesis, you will notice that we are people who are made by God, and then he declared. This is a God who declares things into existence. He brings from nothing things that are through his own declarative power. He declares that we are very good at the very outset of all things. You you can look it up. But you and I, all of us, we were literally made at the foundation of all things to reflect God's own goodness, His peculiar character, His wonder, and His image. And while our imaging of God can most certainly be marred and misconstrued, I do not believe it can be fully stamped out. We were made in His image. I think the the most prominent experience I've ever had of realizing this was the first time I flew into New York City, now I, I realize some of you probably, you know, maybe you grew up in New York City or you flew there regularly as a child. I did not. I grew up in small towns. And so I have this most vivid memory of being 17 years old, sitting beside Jay Daly and looking out the window and the wing of the plane suddenly tipping down. And in an instant, I caught sight of the entirety of Manhattan for the first time. And there were two ideas that popped into my head first was, Jay, could you move over a little bit? Just kidding. That wasn't the first one. The first one was, how on earth did human beings build something like that? 
is so expansive, so complex, so enormous. Even just one single building to me seemed like this miracle of engineering. And then the other thought that hit me, and this was maybe even more potent, how could it be that God actually knew and intentionally made each and every one of those 10 million people? All of them down there, scattered all over the place, walking along streets in buildings that could hold tens of thousands of people at once. God actually knew each of them, everything about them. He understood their names, their purposes, the things that they desired in their own hearts, and he loved them. I was simply overwhelmed. I hadn't even landed at LaGuardia. But you see, I, I don't think we reflect on this near enough Even in a culture that loves to talk about human dignity, there's something deeper going on here. This is not merely an anthropological statement. It is about the goodness of God and the character and craft of his handiwork. Because you see, according to the Christian tradition, humanity is not vile. We are not gross or despicable or base. Humanity is, according to the scriptures, the very apex of God's creative handiwork. And what that means for us is that everyone you encounter, or don't, nameless toll booth worker in Shanghai, a laundry attendant in Jakarta, every single person you pass by on your way to work is known by God and was created by God. And by virtue of that created goodness, absolutely courses with his own image. So again, Jesus says, you or the light of the world. Now, I think if we are to give a faithful reading of Jesus' teaching here, we also cannot neglect the simple fact that this statement comes at the very beginning of all the sort of most powerful moral material in the New Testament, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There is a moral component to this. He even says in our own passage, you'll see it, that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It turns out if you read the rest of Jesus' teaching that the scribes and Pharisees are not all that righteous in the first place. However, the question still stands for us, what does it look like for broken people to be the light of the world? I think the most obvious answer is at the very beginning, it's that Jesus gives us, renews in us a particular moral vision by which we might inhabit this given goodness. The Sermon on the Mount, that is, it's not some simple rubric of how we might be good or bad. It is the way in which we might carry God's own light into the world. It reflects what he loves and cares about. The poet and priest John Donne, he, he uh, said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, All the articles of our religion, all the canons of our church, all the injunctions of our princes, all the homilies of the church fathers, all the body of theology ever written is in this one sermon on the mount. In other words, everything is already there. And that is, we, we are called by God's own goodness to usher forth and to shepherd that light that is given to us. And it's why Jesus says in our reading again, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not worth anything. But I think there is also a more fundamental component to this teaching here that we cannot overlook and that we tend to forget And it is this, before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm not going to do today, don't worry. Jesus intends, we must see, Jesus intends to use us, not by virtue 
of our own light, but because he gives us his own light. Here's what I mean. If you turn to our Corinthians passage, we actually get a profoundly vivid display of this. If you know about Paul's own life, you know, right before he wrote Corinthians, Marjorie Kennelly helped me to see this. I'm endowed to her for this insight. You see, before Paul spent time with the Corinthians, he, he had actually tried to give himself over to, um, to his own powers. He had tried to achieve the world by means of his own light. If you know the story, it's all detailed in Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to Athens, and he stands in the middle of the sort of greatest cultural center of their area, the Areopagus, where all of the philosophers and political thinkers gathered to discuss. And there he delivered one of the most famous sermons in all of the Christian tradition. It is this this winsome and cultured appeal to Jesus by means of their own Athenian gods. And his display of uh, wisdom and curated wit is absolutely astounding. But if you read at the very end of Acts 17, the most shocking thing is not the profundity of his words. It's simply that there are only two named people <laughs> who gather to follow Jesus. This is Paul. He is the great apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes to Athens, the cultural center of the world, and two people <laughs> show up. So he shows up in Corinth, and then listen to what he says. Note this transition. He says, Brothers and sisters, I came to you not with eloquence or human wisdom. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive. No. They did not rest on human wisdom but on the power of God. And so you can see what happened here. It's actually somewhat obvious. The human wisdom, the cultivated virtue, the whole light that Paul hoped to display to the Athenians, it had done very nothing, very little. And so he says, I decided to know nothing, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is, it is not simply about the person and their capacities and their giftedness. It is about the light that they carry. In other words, the light that you and I carry, that God has given to us by virtue of his own created intentionality, it is not dependent on your faculties. It's not dependent on your skill. It's not dependent on your intelligence. It's not even dependent on your moral pedigree. It is carried out in great faithfulness precisely in the ways that God has made you. And we see this perfectly plain in the life of Paul. Think about it. He is a man of remarkable eccentricities and giftedness, but he is also stubborn and proud and deeply broken. And here he is in front of the Corinthians in his own skin preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to broken people in Corinth who eventually receive this message deep joy. And so you see, there's the proof. To be the light of the world certainly means pursuing all that is detailed in the Sermon on the Mount. I commend that to you. But it is not about being something that you are not, and it's not about abandoning who you are now. It's about being illuminated with God's own goodness that you could carry forth his presence into the world. In other words, friends, 
what we see when we read through the scriptures about being the light of God is that God has made us to carry his light. Jesus has come to show us in the fullest form the true light of God and his spirit, detailed in Corinthians that we just read, is given to us that we might be renewed to carry forth that light into the world. And the best image of this that I can possibly imagine is what we're going to do in just a few minutes, which is you come forward and you receive the Eucharist with open hands. And the claim that Christians have is that God's presence in some great mystery abides in that bread and that wine. And you get to receive it, not because you understand it, not because you've earned it, not because you are special, but because you were made in God's joy to carry forth his light. That is good news for us, friends because you already are the light of the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.